Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. You've just heard Paul declare that you've been set free from sin. You've been set free from sin. But in order to understand the nature of that freedom, you have to distinguish between what I'm going to call like a modern understanding of freedom and an ancient understanding of freedom, because they're not the same thing. When Paul talks about freedom, as our passage makes clear, he doesn't see it exactly the way that we see it. Otherwise, he could hardly say something like, now that you've been set free from sin, congratulations, you're a slave to righteousness. That sounds like out of the frying pan into the fire. So what is he talking about when he talks about freedom? So let's think about the modern understanding of freedom first. And in order to encapsulate it, I want to give you a couple of quotes. First quote comes from Jean-Jacques Rousseau, great prophet of Geneva, not John Calvin, but Jean-Jacques Rousseau later in a book called The Social Contract, wrote these famous words, man is born free and everywhere in chains. Man is born free, but look around and everywhere you see him in chains. The problem of man isn't nature, in other words. He was born free. The problem is politics. He's in chains to despots. He's in chains to kings who believe they rule by divine right, who violate what Rousseau calls the social construct. These rulers take away the freedom of those men and women who were born free. And so the solution to that bondage is a political one. Liberation. Political liberation is the solution that he has in mind. The kind of spiritual liberation that Paul might speak of isn't really a concept. When Rousseau was writing a few centuries after Calvin, he demonstrates a very different, a very modern view of the human condition. In Geneva, in Calvin's day, people wouldn't have said, man is born free and everywhere in chains. They would have argued he was born in bondage. Very different, very modern view of the human condition. We're born free. Our problems come to us here in this life from other people who through oppressive political structures take that freedom from us. And the solution is to be liberated from their power. Rousseau is writing in the Enlightenment in the 18th century. And Enlightenment ideas are baked into the way we as Americans think about the world. Our founding documents or enlightenment documents, enlightenment ideas of what it means to be free have shaped the way we think of freedom. But to understand freedom as we understand it, you need more than Rousseau. You also need uh, Henry David Thoreau. Henry David Thoreau, the famous uh, naturalist who went off and lived on Walden Pond, which apparently was a lake not far from the city, not too inconvenient to go and stay. But he goes, he writes a book about it, and he says these words, which I would argue deeply resonate 
disobedience is the true foundation of liberty. The obedient must be slaves. Disobedience is the true foundation of liberty or freedom. The obedient must be slaves. I don't know about you, but that makes sense to me. The last thing in the world I want to be congratulated on is how obedient I am. Oh, Mark, you're wonderful. You're such a rule keeper. Well, you follow all the rules. That's awesome. You're so predictable in that way. No, of course not. As Americans, we want to be mavericks. We want to color outside the lines. We want to be individualists. If you make rules, the way that I know I'm free is I don't keep them. I break them. That disobedience is the true foundation of liberty. I mean, we all know this. Those of us, at least, who have driver's licenses know this really well. You've never felt more free than you do when you're exceeding the speed limit, which in South Dakota, let's be honest, that's hard to do. Right? When they raise the speed limit to 80 miles an hour, you would think that, that even a fallen human being would be satisfied with that limit. But I find it is very unsatisfactory. And, and I myself, it's okay, I've confessed it, but, but I myself have found the drive to, you know, like Rapid City, 80 miles an hour, it's still, you need to go so much faster to, to compress the distance, Right? And it feels great. No, it doesn't feel great when you're alone on the highway doing 90 miles an hour or whatever you're doing. Right? That doesn't feel as great as when you're doing 90 miles an hour in the left lane and in the right lane, people are doing 80 and you're blowing past them. That feels great. Every time you pass one of those small-minded conformists who, who's merely driving within the limits, you feel free. It's exhilarating. Like you are your own person. You're not hemmed in by man's rules. You were born free and everywhere you're in chains, but not on the highway. You experience that freedom. And when you do, Thoreau's words resonate and you're like, yeah, yeah. How could I ever be free if I'm not free to disobey? This is baked into the way that we think about freedom, even when we come to the gospel. So that people argue over human freedom and and God's sovereignty. And and what it all revolves around is is something, uh, I'm oversimplifying a little bit here, but something we might express as like the freedom to sin, right? I, I need the freedom to not believe. I need the freedom to rebel, the freedom not to obey in order to be truly free. And people will sometimes tell you things like this. You know, God gives us the freedom to sin so that we might obey out of love and not compulsion. And Paul would say, that's a funny way of talking about freedom. That's a really funny way of talking about freedom. If you think it's weird for me to say, now you've been set free from sin so that you might become a slave to righteousness, I think it's even weirder for you to talk about the freedom to sin. Because do you not know that your sin is not an expression of freedom? That your sin is an expression of bondage. That the thing that you do that makes you feel so free is not a cry of freedom. It's merely a confirmation 
of bondage. And that's where you see the conflict between the modern idea of freedom and the ancient one. For us, ideas of disobedience and yes, sin, transgression are wrapped up in what it means to be free. And then you come to Romans 6 and you find out that from the Bible's point of view, that's not what freedom looks like. In fact, what freedom looks like is the opposite of that. But if freedom isn't disobedience, then what is it? What is it? That's the question. But Paul begins this chapter with a different question, right? Because he's just said in the passage that we looked at last week that you're no longer under the law. You're no longer under the law. And so he poses a second rhetorical question. He anticipates a wrong conclusion that you could come to. When I say, hey, you're not under the law anymore, there's an idea that that might give you, and Paul wants to address it. So in verse 15, he says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. So at the beginning of the chapter, he asks, uh, should we sin so that grace may abound? And says, by no means. Right? So you may assume that the gospel of justification by grace through faith means it's okay to sin. It doesn't matter. But Paul not only says, no, that's wrong. He says it's antithetical to the gospel. It's, it's opposites. It's crazy to draw that conclusion. And again, here, he does the same thing. Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Again, by no means. Once again, this is antithetical. This is the opposite of what I'm talking about. When I tell you you're not under the law, this is not what it means. It does not mean that you are to sin. So if you think about that question, there's a logic underneath it. There's a reason why this is the question. He's just said that you're not under sin and the reason why someone might conclude, okay, so, so that means it's okay to sin, is that it's the law that defines the sinfulness of sin. Right? How do I know what's sinful? You know, how do I know uh, if I shouldn't steal things? Well, the law tells me it's wrong. The law condemns it. But if I'm not under the law, then a conclusion I might draw is it no longer matters if I steal things because there's no law to say that that's wrong. The law defines what is sin. We're no longer under the law. Therefore, our sins are no longer classified as sin. We're free to continue as before. And what the gospel has done is just change the consequences. So in a sense, the gospel of grace, you could interpret it this way. You could say, well, the good news of Jesus Christ is that we were sinners and we were going to be condemned because of that sin. But now Jesus has come and kept the law for us. His righteousness is imputed to us. So we don't need to worry about how we live anymore because it's all covered. It's all been paid for. And the sin that we do is no longer sinful because the law no longer applies. It used to be we were under the law and we couldn't get away with this stuff. But what Jesus has done, he's taken the law out of the equation. Now we can get away with this stuff. That's, that's the idea. That's the logic. That's the, the way of reading what it means to not be under the law. But remember, in verse 13, when Paul says that you're not under the law, he does it in the context of, of a, an exhortation. And he says, don't present yourself to sin 
present yourself to God. And that's the context. So clearly, you can't conclude that being not under the law means continue to sin, because he's just said being not under the law is a reason to present yourself to God, to present yourself to righteousness. And now he digs deeper into that idea as he continues. Do you not know, he says, which is exactly how he answers that first question. Do you not know? It gives you kind of that that Jesus talking to Nicodemus in the garden thing again. Like, you should know this stuff. Like, it's surprising that, that you would come to these conclusions. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, obedience which leads to death? to righteousness. So just as he did at the beginning of the chapter here, he follows his rhetorical question by asserting a kind of general principle, like a a statement on the way things work that you should know already. It's kind of appealing to your common sense. Don't you see that this is the way it works? Essentially, he's saying, don't you realize the significance of your baptism in that earlier question? Right, if you go to the beginning of the chapter where he, he says, do you not know? And then he talks about baptism. When you were baptized, you were baptized into Christ's death. Saying, don't you understand the significance of the sign? Here, he's doing the same thing, except he's asking a different question. It's sort of like, don't you understand what it means to serve sin? If you're saying to yourself, if I'm not under the law, it's okay to continue in sin, And Paul's like, don't you realize what continuing to sin means? That it signifies service. It signifies slavery. The principle is whoever you present yourself to, that's who you serve. Whoever you present yourself to, that's who you serve. And in saying this, Paul is merely echoing what Jesus taught. Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 34 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, in John 8, the argument Jesus is having, he's having with people who are saying, We're not sons of the devil, we are sons of Abraham. And Jesus says, No, you serve sin. Like you belong to, you are a slave of the one you serve. Like you are, in fact, children of Satan because the one who practices sin is a slave to sin. So he's pointing out the the difference between a confession of faith and the actual practice of life. It's not what you say. It is who you serve that shows us like where you are like who you're in bondage to. Peter teaches the exact same thing that Jesus and Paul do. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, in talking about false teachers, Peter says, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So if you present yourself to sin, Paul is saying you become a slave to sin. And that slavery, that service to sin leads to unrighteousness. 
and eventually to death. So that far, Paul is just echoing words Jesus already said that Peter says elsewhere. But Paul adds something to that. He, he rounds out the picture. Right? He doesn't just talk about slavery and bondage to sin, which leads to a life of unrighteousness, which leads to death. He also talks about the opposite, because here his purpose is to describe not the old life, but the new life. He's here to tell us how to live now, not how we once lived. And how we live now, after justification, after the cross, is the opposite of the way we lived before. But as all of these analogies in Romans function, that it's the opposite, but structurally, it's like the reverse image. If you understand the way the old way worked, then you understand the way the new way worked. Right? So you once served sin. You were a slave to sin. You were in bondage to sin. And now in the new life, you've been set free from that. So now your life becomes like a mirror image of that. In other words, your service, which once pointed towards sin, now points towards God. A complete reorientation. The new life works in the opposite way. Serving, obeying God, it leads to righteousness and to life. And the interesting thing here is there's not a third option that Paul presents. It's not you once served Satan, you once served sin, and now you've been set free to decide for yourself who you want to serve. Maybe God, maybe Zoroaster, maybe Zeus, you know, uh, but you decide. That's the main thing. That's the main thing. No, there's no third option. There's no other place to stand. And the way Paul represents this, it's either or. He insists on two options. Like it's either or. It's a dichotomy, but not a false one. Either we serve sin and unrighteousness, which leads to death, or we serve God through righteousness, which leads to life. And if you're not doing that, Paul says, you're doing this, no matter what you call it. Those are the only two options. Now, there's a way that that you could make that statement that sounds kind of like a call to repentance, you know, a choose you this day kind of statement. But Paul's not speaking to the unrepentant here, right? He's speaking to those who know Christ. And so he's not saying to them, you know, I want you to choose Christ so that you won't end up in death. They already have. Like, they're already following after him. The question is, what does that look like? So there's an assurance that comes in the words that he speaks next. Thanks be to God, he says, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Thanks be to God, he says. Similar to the way in Hebrews, when he gives an apostasy warning, he warns people of the consequences of abandoning their faith in Christ. He follows that up by giving words of hope, like, like I do not think this is you. Like, I have hope for you, he says. And here's the same thing. He's speaking of, of bondage, 
but he's speaking of it in a very hopeful way. He does not believe we are in bondage to sin any longer. We have, in fact, been set free from sin. There's a few things in verses 17 and 18 that are interesting as far as Paul's description of our justification goes. It's interesting, first of all, that he thanks God for it. That the thanks he gives is to God because God is the one who's done the work. He doesn't say, but thank goodness you did the right thing. You were in bondage, but thank goodness you liberated yourself. Thank goodness you made the right choice. You did the right things. Not at all. The thanks is to God who did the work. Thanks be to God that you are no longer what you were. And he notes that this work of God, this work of justification results in something that he calls obedience from the heart. Not just obedience, but obedience from the heart. We talked at the beginning of this series on the new life, that the new life is not about mere obedience. It is about obedience, but not mere obedience, not just ticking off boxes, not just keeping rules. It is about faithfulness, right? Faithfulness, which he describes here as obedience from the heart, not just compliance, but a desire for faithfulness that leads to righteousness. He says also that as a result of this desire for faithfulness that comes from our justification, that because of that, we have been committed to what he refers to as a standard of teaching, standard of teaching or a form of doctrine. And we know it's not that that we have committed ourselves to it, but that we have been committed to it. And that it is specifically a form of doctrine or a system, a pattern of teaching that we have been committed to, a standard that we have been committed to. I don't know if we didn't touch on this this morning in Sunday school, but as we talk about the Westminster Confession, one of the terms that we use for the confession and for the catechisms is the standards. The standards, because these are the teachings. This is the the pattern, the system, the standard of teaching that has been revealed in scripture to which the gospel has committed us to Paul is saying to the Roman Christians who were Christians before Paul ever showed up, like who had a church before Paul ever arrived at the time that he's writing the letter, he's never been to Rome, but he's writing to these people and he's saying to them, you know, remember the gospel, remember the gospel that you've been committed to remember the words. He's not revealing the gospel to them. In other words, he's reminding them, of that gospel that they have already been transformed by. And it is that gospel, he says, that has set you free from sin. And then he equates that freedom with slavery. And a really weird twist. It's almost like Paul, if he'd had a better editor, like if he'd shown these letters to somebody before he sent them off, Somebody could have said, you know, Paul, what would make this a much more inspiring passage is if you wrote free from sin, period. Just just stop it there. That sounds great. We could make posters of that saying. But, but to say set free from sin and now have become slaves of righteousness, that raises complicated questions, Paul, that maybe you don't want to get into. But he doesn't. Like, like side by side, Paul puts the idea of freedom and the idea of, of slavery as if to be free from sin is, is 
to be a slave to righteousness. This reveals more than anything that Paul doesn't subscribe to our philosophical conception of freedom. He means something different by freedom than we do. To us, freedom means you get to choose one side or the other, or even no side at all. Presupposes, our view does, that a human being stands apart from the question that we have the autonomy, the freedom to decide where we're going to stand, that we're apart from the fray, independent, that we're potentially neutral in these questions until we commit ourselves by the power of our own will. That's our idea of what freedom looks like. The reason Paul's view of freedom is different from ours, by the way, is because Paul's view of human beings is different from ours. He doesn't imagine that, that the sinner is a sort of exalted, free, neutral entity, willingly submitting himself sometimes to wrong, sometimes to right, depending on how he ponders and considers every question. What, what Paul sees in the, the sinful human heart is not neutrality, it's not independence, it's not freedom, it's not liberty, it's not power, it's, it's servitude. It's bondage. And to convince yourself that the things you do out of slavery or acts of freedom is perhaps the worst kind of self-deception. In Scripture, the human being is not neutral. Because of the fall, we are already committed to one side, the side of sin. We have lost our freedom. We're not robots. We're not compelled forced to act against our desires. Instead, something subtler has happened. Our desires have changed. Our desires have been corrupted, and we are in bondage to them. So that, scripturally speaking, the slaves of sin get what they want. It's just that their wanting is disordered. What they want destroys them. But they do get it. In other words, you're not free to sin. You're not free to sin. You hear something like that, there's a part of you that's like, well, sure I am. And if we weren't at church, I would show you how free to sin I am. But hear me, I'm not saying you're not able to sin. I know that you're able to sin. I'm saying you're not free to sin. That your sin is not an expression of freedom. It's an expression of captivity, of bondage. And then comes the paradox. What Paul is saying here, human freedom comes from submitting ourselves to God, becoming what he's referring to as slaves of righteousness. That's what freedom is. That for a human being to submit to God, to serve God, to present yourself and your members as instruments of righteousness to God is the way to be free. That's what freedom looks like for human beings. It seems paradoxical because it sounds like you're saying freedom is bondage, but that's not quite it. What we're saying is freedom is being able to become what you were made to be. The freedom here is an ancient conception, like the classical sense of freedom. It is the freedom to pursue the good, 
not the freedom to do whatever we want. Because the freedom to pursue evil is not freedom. It's bondage. Now, when he refers to slaves of righteousness, don't put too much weight on that word slave. In fact, don't put too much weight on it anywhere in the passage, whether it's slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. This is an analogy that Paul is using in order to make a point. And the point is that you're now free to become what you were made to be. You're free to follow the course that God ordained for humanity. But Paul immediately explains, he understands that there's a, a, a kind of twinge of, of doubt that enters in when you use this kind of language. Like he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Like I'm using an analogy here. Like it's not a perfect representation uh, to serve sin. Isn't like uh, chattel slavery, for example, and we sometimes because of the historical realities of sin have to make distinct, have to distinguish things and make allowances because slavery in Roman times is different from slavery in modern times, right? And so the way slavery worked in uh, the Roman era was, I mean, it wasn't as, as horrible as the institution of slavery as we're more familiar with it was, although it was still horrible, but it was different in ways that we would look at and say, well, quantitatively speaking, you know, this, this horrible evil was, was even worse than this quite bad evil but you get what I'm saying. There are differences in the way that it was practiced. And when Paul talks about slavery, what he has in mind is something different than what we typically go to as well. But even then, even making that allowance, Paul recognizes that even the slavery that that we know in Roman times isn't quite right. Because if you're a slave in the Roman empire, you were probably uh, captured on the battlefield by the legions. Maybe you were sold into captivity, but, but it happened against your will uh, a more perfect analogy might be if you had sold yourself into slavery. Like if you had made that choice yourself, because sinners in bondage to sin, that's what, what we've done. We've entered into that bondage willingly. Like we weren't forced into it. In other words, our service to God is a little bit different. We were enabled, right? We were made willing in the day of his power. But still, it's, it's a different thing. It's not subservience in terms of slavery. So Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. And then he, he gives you kind of the point. Like, this is the point of the analogy. This for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. So when he refers to us as slaves of righteousness, don't interpret that as Paul saying something like we've traded one kind of slavery for another. What he means is, is different than that. Uh, The slavery analogy is imperfect, but in both cases, there's a presenting involved, right? Just as we said last time, presenting soldiers, presenting themselves before an officer, to, to say, we're ready to go into battle. We will use our implements of war in your service. In the same way, slaves, servants, present themselves to their masters for service. Because in that sense, it's the same. When you sin, 
when you indulge in a pattern of sin, you are serving the master whose work that is. So it's completely incompatible to say that now that I'm in Christ, I will continue to sin because I'm no longer under the law because to continue to sin would mean to continue to serve the master of sin. And you don't do that. He calls you once again to present yourself the master of life, present yourself to Jesus Christ. The point is what you do and where you end up comes down to a single factor. It is who you serve. What you do, where you end up, comes down to a single factor. It is who you serve. If you present yourself to sin as you once did, the result is more lawlessness and ultimately death. If you present yourself to God, serving righteousness that leads to sanctification, a life of increasing holiness, and ultimately, that leads to life. So the Christian view of freedom is simply this. If you are in Christ, then you have been set free from sin. That doesn't mean keep on sinning because it doesn't count anymore. Because that would mean that the gospel's freedom is just freedom from consequences and nothing else. If all Jesus had done was come to free us from the consequences of our actions, and that'd be great. But Jesus has actually done much more than that. He frees us not just from the consequences of the actions that we did in bondage to sin, but he frees us from the bondage, sets us free from sin itself. So to be set free from sin means you no longer have to serve sin. And to no longer have to serve sin, well, you can't stop there. Nature abhors a vacuum. So often the the problem with our sanctification is that we imagine sanctification is this struggle to not sin. And that the the call on on, on you as a Christian is to go through life struggling day in and day out at every moment not to do the sinful thing. But that's really hard. It's hard to like, like, like say, I have to keep my heart empty of all impure thoughts. I just need to keep it empty. That's kind of nonsensical. That's not what you're called to do. You're called to fill it with something else. To fill your heart with good desire. Not to just keep it empty of, of corrupt desire. In fact, the way to keep it empty of corrupt is to fill it with the good. So the corrupt has no place. If that's true in the heart, it's true in the life. The way to stop sinning is not to stop sinning. The way to stop sinning is to start serving righteousness. And that's what you've been freed to do. You've been set free from that bondage so that you can serve God instead. And the freedom in that lies in the fact that this as a human being is what you were made for. That the gospel gives you the power to become what you were made to be, to fulfill all the potential that was embedded in you in creation. All of that is God's gift, the freedom that he's placed in your hands, setting you free from sin. Thank you for listening. 
You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.